welcome to ArchiSpeak, a podcast about all things architecture. My name is Neil Pan. Join me and my co-hosts, Evan Troxell and Cormac Phelan, every other week as we explore what it is like to work in the profession of architecture. Have you ever worked with an architect? Have you ever wanted to be an architect? Maybe you're in school and you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Or perhaps you know exactly what it is like as you've been working in the profession for a long time and you know that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Or maybe, just maybe, you're planning on changing the world. Join us as we have a casual conversation about all things architecture. It's time for some Speak. So welcome to episode 93 of the Speak podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxell. And I'm Cormac Phelan. And this episode of Speak is sponsored by RCAT. Check out all the features they offer at ARCAT.com. We're also sponsored by the Architect Marketing Institute, the leading provider of client-winning training and resources for architects. Download your free Architect Marketing Flowchart at architectmarketingflowchart.com. Drobo is also a sponsor. What is a Drobo? Drobo is a family of safe, expandable, yet simple-to-use smart storage devices. Drobos are designed to protect your important data forever. Visit drobo.com to learn more. We'll talk more about each of them in this episode later in the show. But first up, we have some friends of the show to announce. We have three friends of the show. The first one up on this episode is John Gomez. John is from Temple, Texas, and uh, he is going to become an architecture student in the fall. So congratulations to joining the profession, John. We really appreciate your donation to ArcaSpeak. This is awesome. Let us know how we can help. Next up, we've got Luis Vargas Sanchez from Miami, Florida, and he is the next donor on this podcast. Thanks very much for uh, for donating, Luis. We really appreciate it. And the last but not least is Karen McCannell, and Karen is from Tulsa, Oklahoma, working at the Macintosh Group, which does architecture and accessibility consulting. Thanks very much for becoming a friend of the show, Karen. We really appreciate it. I think that's a record. Three new friends of the show in one episode. That's awesome. If you would like to get your name read on the ArcaSpeak podcast, or if you wouldn't, we would still appreciate a donation because your donations help make this show possible. Head on over to ArcaSpeakPodcast.com where you can donate by clicking the donate link at the top of any page. And any donation over $5, you can have your name read on the show, and we really appreciate it. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to be talking about this episode. This episode is a little bit different in that uh, Neil did a bunch of interviews when we were at AIA convention in Philadelphia. So we talked to a lot of people out there, and Neil brought a microphone and did some interview-type stuff with a bunch of the big BIM vendors and NCARB. So what we're going to do on this show that's a little bit different is uh, we we felt like a lot of these would be relevant because they've got about 90% of the CAD and BIM market covered here with three different big players in that market. And then we've got NCARB. And uh, interestingly enough, just today on the day we're recording this here on June 30th, we got an email announcing the new Architectural Experience Program, AXP, and that just, I guess, became official today, even though they did announce it back at the show. So I'm sure that we will hear a little bit more about that during the interview with CEO Michael Armstrong. So let's jump into the first interview, which was with Autodesk's Angie Izzy. 
I'm here with Angie Izzy, the Senior Manager for Architectural Strategy from Autodesk. Welcome to ArcaSpeak. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off the question about why is there no Revit for, say, Mac? We have AutoCAD for Mac, mm -hmm. which I'm a, a user of. Mm -hmm. So can you explain to me why maybe we don't have Revit for the Mac and maybe what are some alternatives that Autodesk sure. is considering? We are very um, much a multi-platform company and our strategy is really more around cloud technologies. And as we move to the cloud, it really doesn't, we, we hope, it really doesn't matter what platform you're on, whether you're on Windows or Mac. And we're starting to show this with some of our other applications that extend BIM through um, conceptual design and even to field because we have actually have applications that run on iPads and, and run on the Mac today and run in the browser. And so this is part of our strategy and our cloud strategy will you know, ultimately take care of this. Okay, so with that cloud strategy, AutoCAD's moved away from doing perpetual license and now you basically have to kind of maybe rent your software as some people have described it. Mm -hmm. What's Autodesk's view of that and how does that fit into this overall strategy? So our, uh, our cloud strategy is a huge part of our business model transformation. In this new era of everything being connected, I mean, every, everything you use today is connected to your phone and, and so forth. So it's really important for us to move to this type of environment that allows you to always be connected to your software as well. So we look at it as bringing people to the software rather than buying pieces of software. And so for that, we really want to have a, a transformation that allows you to to, you know, rinse is, is, is a good word, but we really look at it as a, a, a desktop service. So as a we're providing you know, software as a service. And so our new licensing really allows flexibility. And we're talking to architects here today. So let's talk about the flexibility of architects. You know, they're feast of famine. They have a big project. They need lots of licenses. Maybe they don't need lots of licenses because they're between projects. And this makes it very flexible for them to buy a monthly quarterly or yearly subscription of the software so that they can keep a, a you know a core value. We still support existing subscriptions and a lot of our Revit customers have those and we'll continue to provide what we call maintenance subscriptions for those subscribers. Okay. Well I, I think actually me personally I like the idea of the subscription model just because of that flexibility. It's allowed me to have a license to AutoCAD at a much less expensive price and much more flexibility for me when I need it and maybe when I don't. Yeah. So, and overall, on an annual basis, it costs me less than it would if I just bought one license and I was stuck with that version right. for imagine, 10 years. Imagine if you hired someone to work with you and you could go to two licenses very quickly and not have to have that big capital outlay for a project. Well, I think it's an interesting strategy. I think it's uh, something that our industry is coming to grips with as mm -hmm. more software vendors move in that direction. I wanted to ask you again about the Open BIM standard and how maybe Revit works with that or how it incorporates Open BIM or how much does it incorporate the Open BIM standard? So we are very dedicated to being open and there's a lot of degrees of openness out there, right? So, you know, IFC is a big part of that and so we are a huge supporter of Building Smart. The Building Smart Alliance, we're a, we're a member of it, we're a founding member of Building Smart Alliance. We also have opened up um, our IFC uh, translation modeler. We've actually opened that up so people can actually write on top of that. And so these are just tactics that we take in order to be open. And we are very dedicated. And take some of our new tools like Dynamo, for instance. It's an open source. It's on GitHub. And so anyone can go and actually contribute to the code. And these are the types of projects that you will see more from Autodesk in the future. 
sometimes when you think of Revit, it's like the only BIM application out there. Over time, as BIM is becoming more and more prevalent in the industry, there's more competition. You have other competitors um, that may cost a little bit less or offer some other alternative capabilities. That how, what's Autodesk's plan to stay relevant against this growing competition in the BIM market? I think coexisting is really important. I think competition's important. It drives us to be better for our customers. We watch these niche opportunities, not only for just competing with them, but you know they're possible acquisition targets for us because they can help us provide better service. And that's part of my job here at Autodesk is to pay attention to those and look at gaps in our technology workflows and making sure that we're providing the best solution for our customers. And so I think it really helps us be better. I think competitive features help us, you know, competitive companies help us be better for our customers. So I look at it as a great opportunity. And what sort of changes are you looking at making, well, in the future conceptually to your products to make them a little bit easier? Because sometimes BIM is a hard sell, especially to some firm owners. Yeah, we think training is very important. And so a lot of the things we're looking at now are in product training, especially for our smaller firms. Revit LT, for instance, having training built in so that you always have an aid and have someone to help you. Smaller firms don't always have people to lean on. And that's really important. And so we see that and we see that as an opportunity. Um, we also see an opportunity in being able to help customers do more things conceptually. So we've extended them more early in the design frame by adding format to our portfolio. You know, Formant's a great application. It's very easy to use to push and pull and sketch very easily things that go right into the BIM project. So you can actually take Formant model right into Revit and you don't have to start over. And that's a, you know, that's a huge part of that conceptual design that people don't want to have to get hung up in making early design decisions in Revit. And so those are really easy, flexible ways to help you move to BIM easily. Well, great. Well, Angie, thank you very much for joining me on Arcuspeak today, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. All right. All right. Well, thanks to Angie for joining us for that interview at, at the AIA convention. So, guys, what did you think about their response to the future of Autodesk being in the cloud? Well, we've seen this starting to really take off with lots of different vendors. You know, the big ones are really pushing it because it be- creates more of a sustainable business model for software development and at least that's that's what we keep hearing right with adobe and microsoft is doing this too with office 365 and autodesk is doing this and i think kind of one of the interesting things that happened earlier this year when they finally transitioned over to this plan everybody knew it was coming for quite a while is as soon as they did it i I posted a, a link into our our show notes so you guys can all follow along with our show notes if you uh if you go to our website arcuspeakpodcast.com slash uh, anything, uh, any page that you go to, you'll see on the right-hand side, you could sign up for the show notes if you don't already get them. There's a link in there to a VentureBeat article where as soon as they flipped the switch to go subscription, they laid off 10% of their workforce, <laughs> which was like, to me, that one again, th- this is part of the plan, right? This wasn't something that they were reacting to all of a sudden. I'm sure that it was like, once we do that, we can cut back on how, you know, make our, our operation more efficient. And I'm sure that this was part of the plan all along, but it's just interesting how everybody's looking for ways to run leaner, right? Right. Even, especially everybody in our industry, but it's interesting to see how the the 900-pound gorilla is also doing the same thing, right? Because we've got these chains tied to every architect out there who's using 
AutoCAD and Revit, at least who is doing, you know, the latest versions of these things where every year they're coming out with a new version. Every year they're hitting you up for new subscriptions. And and you basically, if you're a, a larger, a medium to a large firm, you've got to stay current because right. all your consultants are using these. And, and so it's this, I mean, perpetual license has taken on a new meeting, right? It's like we are perpetually in uh, linked to Auto, Autodesk now. So it's an interesting thing that's going on. I mean, they're going to the cloud, which is, is a, means a couple things, right? It means, number one, we, we, we all have access from any computer now, pretty much, if you want it. Um, and not directly through Autodesk, but through other companies who are offering those services. We saw one when we were at the show, and it's called Frame. If you head over to frame.io, you can log in and create an account there. And if you do that, you can run AutoCAD Revit or Autodesk Revit right on your MacBook Air if you wanted to because you're using badass computer in the cloud, right? And you're running it through your browser. So that kind of technology is super exciting to me because I don't have to have badass computer that weighs 15 pounds in my bag. I can have a a nice little MacBook Air if I want to, and I can run a full-on work-shared version of Revit right on my small computer. So, you know, obviously there's a cost to that, but that's her answer for how are they serving other platforms, right? So that combined with the subscription model, the interesting thing is now I would have to have a subscription or a some kind of a contract with Frame when I want to use the software. But on top of that, I actually have to have my own network license of Revit, which is $7,000 plus to run I, I would install it on one of their computers, and I own it. It's mine. I get to do that. But it's not a cheap endeavor to do any of this stuff. And I think that's probably the biggest complaint and something you alluded to in your interview with her. Is like how, It's a hard sell for a lot of smaller firms because of that expense. But at the same time, everybody's using it, and it becomes this kind of catch-22 situation for so many firms, and it's really tough. Like, that's why I think it's really keeping a lot of architects from grasping onto new technology because they can't afford to. They want to stay with the old stuff because, number one, they, they know how to use it. They don't have to do training to learn the new stuff, and the new stuff's expensive. So there's all these things hitting people from all these different angles, and it makes it tough as a firm owner to jump into that because it's just a huge nut to crack. Yeah, then there's the other side, and the other side is that you'll never be away, able to get away from work because it'll be everywhere. That's true. I mean, it's just like your phone, right? I mean, it's always going off. It's a 24-7 business, uh, just like every business is nowadays. But that, that's true, right? Any, any, You could be in the Starbucks and you could get onto the free Google Wi-Fi and you could tap into your frame.io and you could be working on a Revit model from a coffee shop somewhere. And you're right. You basically are creating the opportunity to never be able to shut it off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, how it, that's how it all starts. So I went to Autodesk University and at the end of last year, and that they're showing off amazing stuff. I mean, I was I was totally skeptical. I'm not like an Autodesk evangelist in the least. I do use Revit quite a bit, and I like to use a lot of tools. Not I'm not platform specific. Autodesk is what I'm referring to there. And it was like there was an amazing energy and a buzz, and everybody is pretty excited. They're bringing people from all different AEC industries and product design and industrial design and all kinds of stuff like manufacturing and fashion and race cars and you know it's everything they're they're huge i can't believe how many tentacles they've got kind of stretched out into this this amazing um 
industry that that all uses our software. And so you go away from that and you think, wow, there is a ton of innovation. There's a bunch of cool stuff going on. Um, but at the same time, there's just a lot of distrust there in our industry, right? I mean, that's why you brought up what you did, Neil, right? I mean, there's there's the other competition. And when they say they're glad there's other competition, they're trying to crush that competition. I don't know what she's talking about. No, no. She said buy them, acquire she, them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what, Auto, that's what Autodesk does, right? They, they, they come in and they, they, they've got a ton of money and they crush, they crush, they, they take what they want. Um, so... I don't know. It, it's interesting. I mean, I know what the bill was this year for our subscription for Revit. It's crazy money, yeah, crazy yeah. money. So uh, there's other companies out there that are trying to follow suit, right? Like Newforma's trying to do that. And um, and then there's all these other kind of hardware companies that are trying to figure out ways to become subscription platforms as well, because it is that it's a never-ending revenue model then, which helps them do more, do what they want to do. So I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, but then there's the flip side of it. In, in this uh, current project that I'm working on right now with Associate Architects, they in St. Louis, right now, we are basically, we do work, we transmit the models to them, and then they do some work and transmit it back. And it's just, you know, so going into the cloud, I, I see it as a great advantage for collaboration. So I think that it's pretty interesting to look at the possibilities for being able to broaden our reaches. Yeah. Are you guys using Autodesk 360 or are you using Panzura? What are, what are you guys doing to, to do that? Or are you just using other file transfer kind of We're stuff? We're just transferring it through Newforma and, and then now we've we've okay. we've talked about setting it up for the cloud, especially for you know, now that the model is technically done, because really we drove the model. We were the ones who produced the model and, and, and now their other architecture firm that we're working for really is our local they're doing a lot of the CA work and generating, you know, sketches and things like that. And so basically we just kind of turned the model over to them. And, and so you guys just do like a normal upload and then they yeah they get to open it up and look at it, and, but they're not really making building stuff inside of it. No, but I mean, they can, if they want to, they can go ahead and make it a uh, central and, yeah. um, you know, do any work like, you know, generating sketches and all that other stuff out of there. But no, for the most part, kind of still keep control. Now, you know, we've talked about and we haven't ventured into it, but we talked about doing basically uploading the model to the cloud. And it's mm -hmm. a uh, subscription. So it's like I think it's like eight hundred dollars per seat. Honestly, we need four, you know, so, yeah. you know, that's a that's a cost that you know needs to be factored into the billing process and your CA process. And it's just like some people charge to like let the contractor have their model. Maybe that can recoup some of the money for getting these cloud subscriptions. But it's a it's interesting and it's 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 all of it's really in its infancy and kind of interested and intrigued to see where it goes. You said it, Neil, when you were interviewing her, but everybody's going to this cloud-based software type stuff with Adobe and Newforma and everybody else, you know, all, you know, and so it's, it's intriguing to see where it's going. And I, I jokingly say, well, we'll never be able to get away from it, but yeah, we won't be able to get away from it. And sometimes when we're sitting in front of the client and they say, well, you know, <laughs> there's that old excuse of like, let me go back to the office and I'll try to whip something up in the computer and then we'll come back and sit down. You know, well, now you got to do it right there. <laughs> now you got to do it right there. Now you're on stage. Well, I think what's interesting about that, you're right, is same thing with, with Creative Cloud. And you've got access to all this stuff with Dropbox. You've got access to it. It's all right there. And I think what's interesting, too, just as far as the subscription stuff goes, which which is, you know, these are two things that kind of work together, the cloud and the subscription stuff, is 
Autodesk and Adobe have proven that it actually works. Right. I mean, both of these companies are doing very healthy work. Right? They're they're not dying. Uh, there was always kind of the question: How are they going to stay relevant? Right. Right. Um, and they've proved that it works. And so I think a lot of these smaller companies or medium companies were looking to just kind of wait and see what happens with that. And now I wonder what they're going to do. So that's something to watch in the future. Yeah, so we'll obviously pay attention to it and see how it goes. It's interesting how all these little, like, these smaller companies, they've basically, well, we'll let the big guys spend all of the money in R&D and everything else to figure out how to make all of this work and find out if it's successful. And then we'll do it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's probably a smart thing to do. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a very smart thing to do. Yeah. Let's take a break from the conversation and talk about our other sponsor, RCAT. We're all pretty busy and sometimes feel like we could use another hand to help out. Would you like someone to draw CAT details for you, create BIM objects, or write specifications? How would you like all of that for free? RCAT is your answer, and RCAT has already done all of this work for you. Search the RCAT libraries for CAD, BIM, specs, catalogs, videos, and more. All of this content created for you free of charge, and no registration required. Stop registering on sites for content. Just come to RCAT and find what you need. RCAT has created a website devoted to you, the building professional, to find building product information fast and hassle-free. Check out RCAT today at arcat.com. And don't forget to provide some feedback on the site. There's a button on the right side of every page. Have a suggestion to make RCAT better? Click the feedback button and let them know, and tell them that ArcaSpeak sent you. Thanks to RCAT for sponsoring this episode of ArcaSpeak. Now let's get back to the conversation. All right, so who's up next? So next up, I spoke with Ranson Radcliffe at Graphisoft's Archicad. And, oop, I'm sorry, I pronounced that wrong. For many years, I've always pronounced (laughs) it Archicad, and I apologize to Graphisoft, but that's just... It's like when people say ArchaSpeak. I know, but... uh, that's the way I learned it a long time ago, and I've never understood. I've never understood why, because we are not. You know, it's, it's, Ar- architects. Archie, architects. I yeah. <laughs> it's you get a slap on the hand. I do. I do. I apologize. <laughs> so anyway, let's let's get into that interview now. I want to welcome to ArcaSpeak Ransom Radcliffe, a BIM consultant with Graphisoft of ArchiCAD, to the show. Welcome, Ransom. I wanted to start off talking to you about ARCHICAD and what actually is ARCHICAD. ARCHICAD is an architectural design software. It's a program. It's for architects to design their buildings and produce their deliverables, basically their drawings and all the other deliverables. So it's a design tool to produce those two deliverables. So is it more of a 2D tool, a 3D tool, a BIM tool, a rendering tool? It's all What's of the above. Okay. So there are some things that are worth modeling, and there's some things that are worth rendering, and there's some things that are best represented in in schedules of, of information, and some things are drafted, right? It's a very good drawing tool, but the the core concept of Graphisoft's ARCHICAD was back in, in the early 80s, even, that you would design a building virtually in a computer, and the drawings would be derivative or extrapolated from that that model rather than extruding up 2D lines to make 3D shapes. It was the opposite, turning the telescope backwards and saying, no, we're going to produce the drawings from the model. 
And what that did is it unified all the drawings from one set of design decisions. It made so, it coherent. So almost ARCHICAD was BIM long before the buzz term BIM existed. Yeah, in fact, that's why we used to call it virtual building, which, like BIM, works as a noun and a verb. It's a process, and it, it, uh, it, the concept is there, but BIM got the catchy acronym. Right. So what, what sets ARCHICAD apart from the competition that is also BIM and 2D applications? I would say the biggest uh, difference between ARCHICAD and other tools that I've used it would be the speed. The ARCHICAD is a very powerful modeling tool. It, it uses, it leverages the modern computer that has multiple cores for all your moment-to-moment -moment interactions with that tool. So it's fast. So you are taking advantage of multiple cores within different computers. Right. And not just for rendering and for a few uh, special uh, steps in the process, but for that moment-to-moment -moment work that you're doing to get your drawings out. That bread and butter for all of our architects. Now, what about graphics cards? Are you taking advantage of the multiple cores and multiple graphics cards in a computer? Yes, of course. I see a Mac Pro over there, so I yeah. know it's got a couple of graphics cards in it. And actually, we don't need the super high-end graphics cards for ARCHICAD because the graphics cards that have been developed for gaming already have such high performance for 3D gaming that for us, it's quite adequate to show our models with those standard graphics cards. Well, fantastic. So what sort of size practice is best suited for a software like ARCHICAD? You know, that's a real hard one because I find that it really helps the really small firms, even the people that have one or two people only working on it because it's such a powerful tool. It lets them kind of hit outside of their weight class sure. and they can do much larger projects. One of our clients in Toronto was their one of their projects was featured on the box of the ARCHICAD 18, and they're uh, one of our larger firms. Yet their teams are usually one or two people, and they do high-rise apartment buildings and so on. And I am amazed what two or one person teams can do from working up the schematic design, talking to the clients, and working up their needs and their program, and then actually producing the final deliverables all the way through CDs and CA even. So, but then on the other hand, I've seen that ARCHICAD is very good for large teams. When you have to put a lot of people onto a project, you need a software that can allow all the team members to work on the project without getting in each other's way, and also probably work from home or at a hotel when they're traveling, in some place where there isn't a good internet connection. So since ARCHICAD's teamwork is so robust, it doesn't need a fast connection. In fact, one of our working methods is that you can go offline for a while. In and some that works with multiple people on any project? On any project. Can so multiple people open up one file and work on it? Yeah, How does they that work? work? It, it, it works on a totally different concept that instead of everyone getting all of the models simultaneously in terms of control, they get all the model, but the things that they want to work on they designate, they, they sign out, essentially, control. Right. So once they sign out, if there's a break in the internet connection, it doesn't hurt anybody else because they can continue to work. And as soon as they, they have a connection, they can send and receive their changes just like they would email that they might have composed while they're on an airplane. Right. And when they have to send and receive, 
that's when they need the internet connection. But because it's a dedicated process, the internet connection is slow, it just takes longer to send and receive, but it doesn't corrupt any data. Can you talk a little bit about ARCHICAD's involvement with OpenVIM and, and are you supporting it? Yeah. Yes, of course. So we realized that the best solution is that each discipline and each stakeholder finds the tool that's best for them. We know that we can't be the best tool for everybody. So we want to be the best tool for architects, but we don't want to force everyone into a box. So that's why we've always supported many formats, whether it's 2D DWGs, 3D DWGs, PDFs, in and out, all the image file formats you can think of, and of course something called IFC, which is a 3D non-proprietary BIM file format that is covering all the gamut of, of different disciplines. So it's a science that is not fully worked out yet, so if uh, it's something that still needs to improve, and it has over the years, but when you're doing something as complex as BIM, and you're trying to use it to produce deliverables in an authoring tool, it's a, it's a big challenge. Okay. So I want to wrap up by asking you a quick question. You just announced a new release of the software version 20, yeah. and it has completely revamped the UI of the software. Yeah. What was the thinking behind changing it now after it's kind of been the same for a number of years? And what do you expect for the user's reactions to be? Well, there were uh, some pressures uh, that have changed because the hardware has changed. Many of our users are now using retina screens, which basically are, are twice the resolution of the older computer monitors. And now even they're getting uh, 4K television sets for a very low price. That they're So now instead of their monitor being a small representation of their large construction drawings, their drawings are actually now smaller than some of their monitors. Well, when you go up to that scale, your tools, your icons, the whole interface that, that works at a certain scale, either is tiny on screen, it's little buttons relative to the rest of the surface of the screen, or if you blow it up proportionately, they get kind of clunky looking because traditional icons are made out of blocks of color. And so they start to look like Lego blocks on screen if you blow it up. And so what we went to do is, is uh, redesign all the tools and icons and graphics to be a vector-based underlying. So we have infinite resolution as a starting point. They still get rasterized, but they get rasterized for a more optimal resolution. And it's a different kind of monitor than we just had maybe five years ago. So beyond updating the icons, you've kind of rearranged a few things at the interface as well. Yeah. What are your hopes by doing that? Well, what it does is it leaves us more room to draw. So even though we've got bigger screens, it seems we can't please everybody completely. So even more drawing space. So our navigator, for example, will default to being retracted and you will click to drop it down when you need to access views, layouts, and viewpoints but not have it sitting there statically occupying drawing space all the time. I think once, it, it's like television sets. People used to think a 35-inch TV was huge. Now they've gotten used to 60-inch TVs, and I think they're going to like this drawing space that they get in ARCHICAD 20. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Ransom, thank you very much for joining me on the ARCHISPEAK podcast, and again, thank you again for everything. I appreciate, appreciate it. it very much, Neil. All right. 
Well, thank you to Ransom from Archicad for joining us on Archispeak. The guys where I wanted to lead off with this one was I, I found it very interesting that, that Archicad was very upfront about how they engineered the software to take advantage of the multiple cores in, in, in current machines. I think that's something that's a bit of a mystery when it comes to a lot of programs. We've got all this power built into these machines, and yet... If you've got eight cores, maybe these applications are only built to really use one at a time. And I thought that was really interesting that he kind of that we kind of led off with how the software itself is so fast because it's taking advantage of the more modern computers that people are getting now. I mean, yeah, they're on version twenty, right? So they've been around forever. When when did you start using it, Neil? It was like it was like nineteen eighty two. Not not quite that far. <laughs> nineteen ninety. Version one was the stone tablet edition. That's right. <laughs> I, I think it was version three, but uh, it was 1990 when I first uh, was exposed to Archicad. So, I mean, just looking at where it's come from, I mean, you've got it's any of these companies that have been around that long have always been dealing with this this legacy code base and and computers slowly developing over time, and at some point they get so archaic with thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of code that they've got to go back and kind of rewrite it for modern computing. And so we see that all the time with, you know, when we went from 32 to 64 bit, all of a sudden, none of the companies were ready to do that, even though the hardware was there, they weren't ready to take advantage of it or multiple cores or more than so such and such amount of RAM, right? There's forever, you know, QuickTime wouldn't even operate with over two gigs of RAM. And now you've got computers with 16, 32, 64 gigs of RAM. So all of this stuff is just compounded to make it where these companies have to start to rewrite these to take advantage of those things. And and we know from you know the projects that I'm working on, the, the models are getting crazy detailed and heavy, right? There's so much information. You know, the I in BIM, the, the letter I for information, is the most important part. And there's tons and tons of information loaded into these models. And... While he's he's right that the graphics processing isn't the bottleneck, it's much deeper than that. It's all of the processing. You know, if you get a very fast computer with eight core Xeon processors or twelve cores, that's where the power lies when you're working on BIM models. It's not necessarily the gaming graphics cards that are powering VR headsets. Those are two completely different things. They're they're doing things completely. So if you go out and buy that computer, it's not necessarily going to work well for BIM stuff. Um, and vice versa. So it's that you really have to tailor your graphics card for what you want to do with the computer. But other than that, all the other stuff is the important part when it comes to doing doing these BIM things. So it's great to hear that they're doing that, and it's great to hear that they're taking uh, advantage of the multiple cores because we all know that we're all prone to putting more and more and more information into these because we want contractors to build from these models someday. And so we want the models to be ready for that. We want the information that you extract in the 2D drawings to come from the 3D model, right? That's where we're putting that information in. So it is really important that the, the computer can be as fast as it can and that they're taking advantage of that. So it's all good stuff. It's all really good to hear that that they're already taking advantage of that. The other thing I found very interesting that they're doing is they have a very robust teamwork management platform, really, to uh, that may not be the best way to describe it, but essentially being able to have multiple people working on a model at the same time. And that's such a huge deal because I know one of the problems that, that can happen, is, and I'm kind of going back to AutoCAD here, 
is that you really can't do that. So you almost have to, if you've got a large project, you almost have to separate out different pieces of it. Like the elevations are in one drawing file, the plans in another drawing file. And we, we get around that through X referencing, but that's not really BIM. And so in order to have everybody working on a model, they've built a system that allows you to check out pieces of it and have it still be the model. And I found that very fascinating and definitely something that I know other software platforms have and, or some have and some are going to because you, you really can't do these BIM uh, uh, models without having that. You can't, you have to have multiple people being able to work on it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I don't think there's any way around that anymore. I mean, the projects that I work on, we've got always more than one person in the model at the same time. So, and they are not in the same location either. So I think that it's good to hear. I don't, I don't, I think they've had that for a few years now. And I know that other companies are trying to do the same thing. And it makes sense when you have everything in one file, it's all in one place. Everybody has to be able to have access to it. And so what he described sounds very similar to the way Revit works. And, you know, you check out objects, you don't, you don't check out sheets, you don't check out drawings, you check out objects. So you could have multiple people working in the exact same sheet. You know, like you said, Neil, it's it's completely kind of the opposite way that we have to work in AutoCAD. But it's a good thing. It's a good way to work. So I'm, one of the things I wanted to ask you guys, because we don't see this very often, and I know that from my own personal experience and talking to uh, other software vendors that there's oftentimes a very negative reaction when there's big changes to the UI. And I think what Graphisoft has done to change ARCHICAD, the whole UI is updated different and they've moved some things around and there's a lot of advantages and, and Ransom mentioned several of them in, in the interview, but I wonder what the real reaction is going to be from the users because if you walk into work one day and suddenly your entire work environment is different, rearranged, it's a little upsetting and it might take a little while. Yeah, thank you, AutoCAD. I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> Ribbon, anyone? I, yes, exactly. What's your guys' thoughts on that? It's polarizing because personally, I think if you've got a beautiful to look at interface, it makes a huge difference because you spend so much time in it, right? So if it's sure. if it's well organized and it looks good, I like that. I mean, there's plenty of software that I use that I hate the interface, and there's a lot of software that I haven't used because I hate the interface. As long as it's usable, though, and logically laid out and makes sense, because, I mean, yep. there's been some decisions, I won't say the name of the software that made this decision, that... I think you already did. <laughs> oh, I did? Oh. <laughs> oh. But... <laughs> I mean, they're trying to make some of their platforms look similar. And the problem is, is that what they've done is they've taken what I th thought of, has always thought is like, you know, one of the better 2D drafting tools and revitized it. And now it's just clunky. You can't find anything. They can't find well, it. Yeah. Luckily, all the keyboard shortcuts still work for those who who the, who use them. <laughs> I, I don't I don't feel like I need a, a graphical interface at all in some of the programs because of that. But I think that this is really coming from the mobile world, right? This is we, we get app updates all the time on our phones, and and you've got Google with its flat design on Android, and you've got Apple when they moved over to iOS seven and they redesigned the interface. And I think it just becomes more expected. I think 
this is the kind of thing that people are asking for because they, they're using it on a daily basis on their mobile devices. And so now they're expecting that to kind of go back and influence the desktop. Up until the last, I guess, last go-round of that software that I won't mention its name because I already have, um, you were able to switch back to like the classic mode and things like that. And for people who you know, were caught kind of in the transition between multiple different platforms and stuff, and they just got used to a particular way that everything was laid out and could basically, like me, I could do everything blindfolded because I knew where all of the, either the hotkey commands or I knew where all the icons were and, you know, kind of like working together with both of those, I could just breeze through things. And now I'm like, damn it, where's the offset? The O key. But yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I think that architects hate change in general when it comes to this kind of stuff, because this is your bread and butter. This is your daily stuff. Yes. So it's hard to get over. But at the same time, that all of, this is technology. This is constantly changing. They come out with a new version every single year. We can't expect the, the user interface to not to never change. There's just too many new advancements, too many new tools. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, to do that, so it's good to hear Archicad doing that. The thing I like about it, Neil, is that they're doing it on both platforms. It's Mac and PC. There's parity there. Um, this is a, a favorite amongst Mac users, right? Because it is available and it has always been on the Mac since the very beginning. It actually started out there. And so this is one of those things where, again, I think this is something that Mac users kind of come to expect is you want to have a modern, beautiful interface uh, on the computer that is modern and beautiful sitting on your desk. And that's one of the big reasons why people use Macs in the first place. So it makes sense that ArchiCAD's going there first. And uh, I, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And then they've also got that wonderful iPad app, the BIMX, where you can tap a section button in your BIM model and it flies through in 3D and switches the view and pushes the cutting plane into the building. It's real easy to understand. It's great to put in front of a client. So if you haven't seen that, check that out. We should put a link to that in the, in the show notes. But super powerful uh, iPad app. It's really cool. So neat stuff from Archicad and Graphisoft. I, I think that you know it's definitely one of the favorites out there for the high-end BIM platforms. All right, let's take a minute out of the show to talk about one of our sponsors, and that is Architect Marketing Institute. Are you a firm owner or partner? Then listen up. Our friend Enix Sears and the Architect Marketing Institute are giving away a free architect marketing flowchart showing how to develop a clear and proven marketing plan for a small architecture firm. In this free PDF download, you'll discover the step-by-step marketing plan flowchart that you can copy and implement in your practice to do three things. First, you can create a waiting list of clients for your firm so you can pick and choose the best projects you want to work on. Second, you can attract and win clients who value good design and don't haggle over fees. Use free automated tools to have clients pre-sold and ready to move ahead before they ever meet with you face-to-face. That's important because I think a lot of people spend a lot of time working with clients that never hire them, right? So that's a cool point there. Lastly, Get this flowchart for free by visiting architectmarketingflowchart.com. This is going to be available for the next three weeks only, so don't wait. Get instant access at architectmarketingflowchart.com. And thanks to the Architect Marketing Institute for sponsoring this episode of Archispeak. Let's jump back into Well, the next show. up, we have BitLab Sakar from Vectorwork. He was newly appointed the CEO uh, a couple of months ago. So uh, let's hear what, what that interview is. 
So I'd like to welcome Back to Work CEO, Dr. Bitlap Sarkar, to the ArcaSpeak podcast. We're going to talk about some questions about Vectorworks and a little bit about the industry as well. Sure. Thank you, Neil. So welcome to the show. I want to start off first off with where do you see Vectorworks fitting in the drafting slash modeling slash BIM market? Who is Vectorworks really built for? So we think that modeling slash drafting slash BIM are processes inside architectural design process. So they are part of the whole design process as such and we don't want to separate them different areas and have separate products for them. Vectorworks actually has strong presence in all three areas. It does a quite fantastic drafting because that's how the product started. It introduced fantastic modeling with Parasolid as the modeling kernel. That's when I came in in 2000. And recently, since 2003, we have been developing a number of beam features. Walls and slabs and roofs are associated with each other. The models are integrated. The models are coordinated. So if you change something, it reflects in the drawing. And the data can be attached to each of the model elements. So you can actually count. You can do takeoffs and, and things of that nature. So, you know, we see beam is a part of the whole design, not the other way around. Some other companies might tell you that BIM encapsulates everything. But for us, we see that BIM is just a process that is inside the whole design. So we think that Vectorworks Architect is made for BIM marketplace, and it has all three functionalities, the, the drafting, the modeling, and BIM together. Okay. Fantastic. So much of the time when I mention Vectorworks to people in the United States, even in the design industry, They've never heard of that. Why is that? Well, part of it is, you know, how the product has evolved over the years. You know, it was released as Minicad in the early days, and people still refer to it as Minicad. So they don't even know that it changed its name to Vectorworks in the, in the late 90s. So that's a problem. Also, the problem is, because it was Minicad, people thought that it was Mini, and it was only for 2D drafting and it, it never evolved into the BIM marketplace or it never evolved into 3D modeling. So that's a problem that we are trying to solve by more BIM camps, tutorials for people, visits to the customers, that kind of user-centric, user, user group meetings and user-focused you know, activities. But the basic problem is basically the branding and the way the product was initially released. But I think these things, we could do a much more in terms of from our marketing side, how to expose Vectorworks to the outside world a little bit more. Uh, we are a little bit conservative, I would say, from that point of view. And, but I think the exposure can be increased uh, for the future. Okay. Well, that leads really into my next question. While Vectorworks is an extremely capable 2D, 3D, and BIM application, as you just mentioned, it doesn't seem to have captured much of, as much of the market, say, as a program like Revit. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with expanding that market and how do you turn Vectorworks into a contender in that market? So we think that Vectorworks has always provided you with very notion of a design oriented, you know, you, when you are drawing you are not actually just drafting, you are actually designing something. And that culture we want to bring to the people, bring to the masses. And in order to do that, you know, we need to have, as I said, more camps and provide comprehensive training to some of the people that are out there that are still using Vectorworks in a very 2D way. 
we have half a million customers all over the world active at any particular time. But many of them are just using the product in the old way, the way it used to be, without knowing we are capable of doing much, much more. That should be part of our training, you know, how we train people, how we go about letting them know uh, that we can help in their workflows. And right. we are doing that to some extent. You know, some of the new companies that are actually going the BIM way, we are trying to help them out and let them know that this is the way you can work. We also are working in the open beam way. So open beam meaning that you are supporting IFC the, to talk to other other products like structural analysis or MAP and things of that nature. So that's another thing that people like about it is that it's not constrained to products from a particular company. You can work with other companies, just use that particular format. Why don't you expand on that? How is Vectorworks embracing the open beam? Well, I mean, various ways. The number one, of course, is that you have to support import and export of IFC and import and export of IFC data for your objects. But in addition to that, we are recently doing more on, like, for example, we are doing a project with the Beam Object guys, you know, people who, uh, who gather all the manufacturer's data in, onto their website. And uh, so we are, we are making our presence felt in, in all of those companies that... You know, we are telling everyone that, and our users are telling them, our customers are telling them that Vectorworks is, is a BIM product, why aren't you supporting them? So that's, ultimately I think that is reaching, our message is being heard, and people are supporting Vectorworks in, everywhere on all the manufacturing, the manufacturing. So part of this responsibility is really the Vectorworks users getting out there and being much yes. more vocal yes. about yeah. getting that support for open BIM standards and other industry support as yes. well. As you know, I mean, the, the UK has the 2016 mandate. You know, you have to, when you submit a drawing, you have to also submit an IFC model okay. for that. To the government projects and uh, similar things are happening in other parts of Europe it's like in Switzerland we are hearing more and more people are uh, have to are, are working towards that and I think one of these days you know most of Europe will be like that and I think the customers will be driving this uh, more than the vendors okay so Bivop, you've been with the company for about 16 years and have driven many of the very significant features and improvements over that time as you're stepping into the role of the CEO from being the CTO, how will you continue to drive such energy and work? So first of all, I think uh, that I need to put in proper structure for the R&D organization as well as sales and marketing organization, which I think is, the, is, is a very important thing because in order to have a strong leadership, you need a strong structure, you know, the organization structure. And that's what we have, we have already done that on the R&D side. And we are looking into the sales and marketing side, how we can improve the existing structure. Uh, I also believe that you know we need a you know in a proper culture, the employee culture, the culture for innovation, and we have that as part of our R&D uh, organization. We do innovation weeks, so when uh, people just stop working on the programming stuff and they uh, look into what are what are the things they can do for the future, mm -hmm. and they present it to the rest of the company. And that's a you know fantastic way to let people know that they can be part of the future of the company. And I think that culture really helps us. And, and also, I think, as I transition into the CEO role, the other thing that I need to do is to really look at the strategies, the strategies of how we have been distributing our product, how we have been pricing our product, what are we not doing. Like, we don't have a good ecosystem for our third-party development. You know, all our plugin developers, are not you know properly supported how do you build that ecosystem 
you uh, maybe you build an app center for them. Things like that, those are the things that I think are going to be very important for, uh, for us to keep the momentum alive. Okay. As we wrap up here, I wanted to ask you what your goals or what should attendees take away from visiting your booth here at the AIA convention? I think the main thing that they should, they should take away is that VectorWorks has come a long way. You know, many of them have been visiting us for a number of years. Some of them, they have gone to some other products and then come back to us. And they look at us and they, they are surprised that we are making so much progress. There are some things like the graphical scripting that we added last year. It's not there in many other products, as you can see, uh, you know, when you go around. But this is something that is part of our innovative culture. And this came out of the Innovation Week, actually, the very same Innovation Week that I talked about. So it's very important for us that people look at us and see that we are so focused on doing more innovative features. And not only features that are helping the industry, but features that are helping the design as such. Not any particular industry, but the design as a whole. Well, there's been a lot of advancement in Vectorworks over the last several years that I've seen, and it's really making a difference, and I want to thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you again. Thank you, Neil. Well, guys, what I found kind of interesting uh, from my notes uh, from that interview was, and this is kind of just more of a general comment, but how some apps can earn a reputation very early on, and I know BitLab mentioned that the product used to be called Minicad, and now it's Vectorworks, and yet it's still kind of in the industry is maybe thought of as Mini. And I, I thought that was an interesting comment that he made, and how some other applications don't necessarily have, you know, maybe have that saddled back, that or that that's holding them back, maybe. I don't know. What are you guys' thoughts on how some apps earn a reputation? Like Photoshop would be, maybe be a good example. It's a verb now, you know? So... What's your thoughts on that? I always thought when I heard, I've heard of Minicad and I heard of Vectorworks. And at the time, since I wasn't using either of them, I never really thought they, they were the same thing because never really thought of them. But what was interesting is that at the time I heard of Vectorworks, I always thought of it as not a 2D drafting tool or a 3D dra uh, modeling tool or things like that but more along the lines of something similar to like 3D Studio Max or something like that. Something to take some work from something else and bring it into that one and do a rendering. Like visualization oh, software. Yeah, visualization yeah. software, yes. Yeah, but uh -huh. I never thought of it as anything else because I just didn't know anything of it. And it was one of those things that because I wasn't going to use it because the firms that I've worked for have always been Autodesk-based firms that it was just something different. And and so they struggled with it. And and the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, they've got a good software tool. It's amazing that you can, much like how Autodesk has got a multitude of different programs to somewhat accomplish the deliverables, as BitLab kept saying, you know, or actually it was, I think it was in the previous one, but, you know, the, we've got all of these deliverables that we've got to come up with, and, and so many different people work in multitude. Evan, you, you said it best. You work in so many different programs and stuff. And Vectorworks was one of these ones that can do it all. And I'm always amazed at how it hasn't caught on. What's interesting is that in different parts of the world, these different software packages are huge. Uh, Vectorworks is the number one. Don't quote me on this, but I believe they're the number one app for the A&E industry in Japan. And yet uh, over here, they're not as large. So 
It's really interesting how in different parts of the world, these different packages can be either popular or not so popular. Yeah, I know that they're strong in Europe as well. And yet they are struggle here. And MicroStation was a good one. MicroStation's a great tool. MicroStation grew up from basically doing 2D to 3D to BIM all within the one package. And yet not very many people use it. Uh, I remember one time, and I think I may have told this story before, but when um, the firm that the very first firm that I worked for that I interned with that was heavily into using computers, they used MicroStation and MicroStation was fantastic. And it seemed like it was leaps and bounds ahead of even AutoCAD of today's standard back when I was using MicroStation 95. Yeah, I, I learned on MicroStation as well. Our firm was a MicroStation firm, and I, I enjoyed that a lot too. It was just 2D at that point, but same same kind of a thing. I felt like I had to take a AutoCAD 12 or 14 class when I was at Cal Poly, and it was terrible Yeah, <laughs> yeah. at that time, yeah. Even though some of the firms had like release 12 and things like that, I think I didn't start using AutoCAD, like really using AutoCAD until I think it was what AutoCAD 2000. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so that, and that was leaps and bounds better than some of its predecessors, even though talk to some of the old guys who wrote all those scripts for yeah. a, a release 12 or release 14, they hated going to, uh, AutoCAD 2000. But the thing was, is that I don't understand why these in, in, you know, maybe it's just bigger is better when it comes to marketing packages and things like that. But Autodesk cornered the world on something that at the time when I was learning it, I didn't understand why it took three steps to do the one thing. You know, I could do one thing in one step in MicroStation and it took me three, four, five steps to do it in AutoCAD. Well, I found it interesting that we heard from both Autodesk and Vectorworks of talking about the importance of training and including some of that training either in the software yes. Yes. or providing it as some sort of extra benefit or service. I know, I believe Vectorworks in their select service agreement, when you subscribe essentially to the software, that you get a whole slew of training videos and thing, and access to all of those. So I find it interesting that I think that many of these applications have gotten really good at being relatively easy to get into, but really hard and difficult to master. I think that's any of these modern yeah. programs that are super deep because you don't need to know every nook and cranny, right, of, of each one of them. You, you kind of do what you do in them, and it's kind of fun to stumble on some new functionality here and there. But for the most part, you use a small percentage of the the offering um, to do most of your work, I think, and because they're they're aimed at such a wide audience, right? Small firms, medium firms, large firms. Uh, you might not even do architecture in one of them. There, there's so many different ways you can go. Like maybe you're a woodworker and you're laying out cabinets in one, so you're never going to use certain tools. I mean, there's so many. I think that's the case with just about anything, even Photoshop, right? There's people who use Photoshop who don't touch a lot of the power inside of Photoshop, and that's just kind of the way it is. Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting how. There's actually one company that owns both Graphsoft and Vectorworks, yeah. And yet they seem to compete with each other. And and maybe maybe you know Graphsoft is aimed at the more higher end 
and in Vectorworks at the at the smaller shops. And by higher end, I, I guess I mean by price points. They also own Maxon, which has Cinema 4D, and they just recently picked up Bluebeam, which you know is a I'm a big fan of that. Big and fan. it's interesting how these companies are just like in this race to own everything, Nemechek and Autodesk. And so there's just some major competition going on, which is good. Uh, but at the same time, they're, everybody's kind of lagging behind on the interoperability of the IFC because they're not really interested in interoperating with each other. They're more interested in conquering each other. So they put a lot more R&D into what's the next big thing. And so we see things like Vectorworks coming out with Marionette, which is that graphical node-based scripting, which... Revit and Autodesk also have with Dynamo, and then you've got, you know, it's, it's there. Everybody's looking for these new ways to attract customers and add on these little things, and 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 it kind of makes everybody's head spin. I think when it comes to this stuff, and and I think that's why once somebody picks, which is hard, right? Everybody's like, what do I do? Which one do I buy? What well, once they pick, they never want to have to think about that again. <laughs> so they just kind of start. They just stay in the track that they pick. And they just keep moving forward with that. And so that's why I think you start to see things like subscription models becoming popular, right? Because, okay, you mean I can just pay a little bit of money every year or a lot of money to maintain and keep current. Um, okay, I guess, you know, hook me up to the, the money IV and I'll just keep bleeding it out every year. But at least I'm current. At least I can open everybody's models. At least they can open mine. And I think that's probably what it really comes down to is what are the people you're working with using because we need every everything to actually talk to each other. Yeah, I was and that's where yeah, that's in in you're you're talking about that Gormick when you say, you know, and you guys both are when when you say one's big in Japan and one's I love that. That should be the name of our our episode, a big in Japan or you've got something big in Europe and you've got Autodesk killing it here in the US. I mean, it's all geographical based because we have to use it, our consultants have to use it, everything's got to talk to each other. And it's only the small firms who actually get to pick what they want to use because they're the only ones using it. Right. Yeah, I was going to say compatibility with your consultants is huge in your decision of what software. Because if you're a larger firm and you're going to be doing stuff across the country, what is the easiest thing to do is, you know, who's using what. And if I get 70% is using brand X and somebody else is using brand Y, but you're not using as much of brand Y as you are X, you're going to go with X. Well, and what are your clients asking for? I mean, if you've got clients asking for a model in a certain format, then guess what you're using? <laughs> you're using the software that gives them what they want. That's how it is. And the only ones who can get away with just continuing to use AutoCAD 2006 are those civil engineers. <laughs> Never get another file type from them. It's always that old stuff. Yeah, exactly. But we're under huge pressure to to stay current. You save that down to 2000. Right. (laughs) Well, at least it's 2000 and something, right? Yeah. (laughs) But I I think it was interesting to speak with each of these different software vendors and because we all use or most of us out there are using these tools uh, one of either of these three and and there's many more that we couldn't include in talking with but they they're such important factors in what we do today 
And I thought it was really interesting to try and talk to each one, ask each software vendor some slightly different questions. But I I found it interesting that there were some commonalities. There was a a lot of discussion about Open BIM, and I, I know you just mentioned they're not really interested. But I think what's pushing that interest is that we all need to kind of standardize on something when it comes to a model. And it appears that from some government aspects, they need something that is maybe not vendor specific. And so I believe we're going to see more of a push to adopt IFC and the open BIM. And I hope, I I just hope that everybody will get to a point where It'll be very much interoperable, and you can choose the tool that you want to use that is best for you, that offers you the things that you want, but that you'll be able to interoperate between other people in the industry or, or submittals and things like that. And, and maybe this, maybe I'm dreaming, but I guess the future will tell. Yeah, it's going to take a long time for that to happen, a very long time. Because, you know, it's one thing to build a model in one, and then maybe somebody opens it up in their web browser through a360 and they can explode the model you know a client i'm thinking like they can spin your model around and pull it apart and they're not really messing with the real model but as soon as you take that ifc you know you export that as an ifc you pull it into something else there's some information there but you're not really going to be able to manipulate it and do what you really want to it unless it's the, the same host program at least that's the way i see it i could be completely misinformed and i'm sure there are people completely dedicated to ifc but it's so far, it's been a, a pretty clunky process. And I think it's just, you know, people are more interested in the shiny new toys and tools that are out there rather than trying to make them all talk to each other 100% perfectly. Yep, I think that's true. I want to take a moment and talk about our sponsor, Drobo. Drobo is a family of safe, expandable, yet simple to use smart storage devices. Drobos are designed to protect your important data forever, even in the event of a hard drive crash. There are only two types of people in this world, those that have experienced a hard drive failure and those that will. If you're a Mac user, you have the option of using Apple's built-in backup software, Time Machine, but it's not cross-platform, and if the drive fails, you've lost your backup. Drobos can hold four, five, or more drives, so if one drive fails, you simply replace it with another drive. You can even replace it with a larger capacity drive, and the Drobo software intelligently repopulates your data across all of the drives so your data is protected. Instead of daisy-chaining more and more drives to your computer as your storage needs expand, simply add larger drives to your Drobo. Now that's my kind of storage. Simple and easy. I also want to tell you about a new feature that Drobo recently introduced that is called MyDrobo. What MyDrobo allows you to do is turn a Drobo into your own private cloud server. With MyDrobo, you can create users and give them password-protected access to your entire Drobo or just one folder or even a specific file. I recently got to try this when a friend of mine requested a document that was far too large to email. Using the Drobo dashboard software, I created a username and password for him, shared the file, and emailed the link to MyDrobo. He was able to easily log in, see, and download the file. Simple. Not only have I shared files, but I've also used the MyDrobo feature to remotely access my data while out of the office. The beauty of this is that I maintain control over who has access to my data, and it's not on someone else's server out there on the internet. Simple and safe. There's so much more to learn about having a Drobo. 
check out their website at drobo.com. And if you decide to buy, then use the special ArcaSpeak podcast offer code of ARC100. That's A-R-C-H-1-0-0 to receive 10% off your purchase of a Drobo. Find the Drobo that's right for you at www.drobo.com. And thanks to Drobo for sponsoring this episode of ArcaSpeak. Well, next up, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk to CEO Michael Armstrong of NCARB about their vision and licensing and quite a number of few interesting tidbits we had with Michael. So let's jump into that. So I'm here with NCARB CEO Michael Armstrong at the AIA convention in Philadelphia. Welcome, Michael, to the show, Arcuspeak. Thanks. Thanks for having me. One of the first questions I have for you is, how does NCARB plan to evolve the exam and interning process so that it remains relevant in the current profession? So both the um, what we call the experience program, which refers to what interns used to be internship, and now we're calling it the just the general experience program, and the examination process have a common element. Uh, we conducted a snapshot survey of the profession several years ago called our practice analysis, and that survey led us to design what we call six phases of practice. And we're using those six phases of practice as the organizing tool around the reinvented experience program and the new exam that's going to come out later this year. So for the first time in our history, people will be gathering experience in these six buckets and then they will be tested on those same six subject areas. So we're trying to make sure that the examination and the experience requirements are more complementary and aligned with each other. And based upon what the profession has told us about what they expect of an emerging professional and an aspiring architect. Fantastic. What's been the feedback that NCARB's received regarding the change in the name, actually, since we talked about changing the name of the intern development program? What sort of feedback have you gotten from the profession, and how do you expect firms to adopt this new naming process? I think that, generally speaking, the response has been very positive. People like the idea that we're now talking about architectural experience uh, as opposed to intern development because we're not really developing interns, we're developing architects. And the fact is is that it's the experience that we're, we're emphasizing here. And just from a nomenclature perspective, we always refer to the three E's of education, experience, and examination as the stepping stones to becoming a licensed practitioner. So we've been using the phrase experience for a long time and it just made sense to start using it in, in reference to the program itself. Last year, or actually two years ago, we renamed those that are serving as mentors to licensure candidate community. We changed the name from being IDP coordinators to licensing advisors, and that applies to those who serve that role on campus as a requirement of their NAV accreditation for a school or a program, for the people that the AIA appoints at a statewide level, and also our initiative with the AIAS where we have students that are acting as licensing advisors. So we renamed these roles several years ago, and that's now part of the nomenclature. We have a licensing advisor community that we convene every summer. So we've, we sort of train people up on that new nomenclature. And the fact that these folks who are signing off on the experience report are now going to be called uh, experience supervisors rather than IDP supervisors, it'll take a while for people to get used to that, I think. but. I think, generally speaking, the new nomenclature makes a lot more sense to people. Do you expect firms to 
change the way they're naming, like, we're not going to call them interns anymore? What, what is the NCARB's recommendation for somebody to put on somebody's business card when they're first graduating and starting at a firm? Well, you know, a year ago at this event, we had a press conference where we announced the results of our future title task force initiative where we took a serious look at the use of the word intern based really upon a conference that the AIA had convened called the Emerging Professionals Summit. And at that summit, a number of individuals representing both the emerging professional community and established leaders in the AIA talked about how the word intern today doesn't necessarily carry as much positive connotation as it might have been several decades ago when the transition was made from apprentice to intern. That a number of folks feel that intern connotes some uh, misinformation, that it implies working for free or still a student or really inexperienced when in fact uh, a lot of interns today engage directly with clients and no firm puts intern on a business card. They give a business title to these individuals. It might be project manager, it might be designer, it may be a variety of other things that work in the business context. And our recommendation is that really our focus at NCARB should be on regulating the use of the word architect. And what people call themselves before they become an architect is really up to the marketplace and not up to NCARB. Now, having said that, not all of our state uh, licensing boards agree with that position. And so we've made a decision at the board level that we are not going to move forward on changing our model law definition and that we have 20 jurisdictions today that use the title intern architect or architect intern. And it's up to them as to whether they want to keep using that term. So it's really, in terms of a regulatory tool, we're going to leave that up to the state licensing boards, but in terms of our position nationally, we're not using the word intern in any of our um, informational material, any of our public comments or other information. It's still a debate that's going on. There are some people that really want to have a title. And the fact that we've said we're not going to use the word intern, they want to know, well, what's the new word? And we're saying, that's really up to you, because we don't believe there is a national consensus around this issue. We know that various entities have tried to come up with a new word and they failed, and I think that just proves the point. There is no national consensus. And I would argue further that even within this community of unlicensed persons, it's not homogeneous. Some of these people are pursuing a license, so we're calling them licensure candidates. But there's another strata of professionals who are not pursuing a license. They are working in firms. They have graduated from school. They have no intention of getting a license, and yet they are working directly alongside architects and with clients. That paraprofessional community, as I'm calling them, unlike other learned professions, isn't currently regulated and isn't being given a title. And I think that the profession and the community needs to talk about this strata of individuals. And we need to talk about the work that they're doing that protects the public, the prominent role they play in firms, and how should they be credentialed and what should they be called. And I don't think that's just an NCARB discussion. Uh, I, I know the AIA is, is uh, wrestling with this as well, and I think we'll see how it plays out. So it's a bit, for some people, con a confusing time right now, but we're focused on the use of the word architect and the people that are pursuing a license those are licensure candidates in our nomenclature. Okay. I wanted to ask, kind of return quickly to the exam itself. Yes. 
It used to be a four-day process, nine exams. That's the way I passed it. Then it's down to seven. You mentioned earlier the six experiences, and it's now going to be six. Mm -hmm. How do you think the new tests are going to prepare candidates to practice architecture? Well, what we've done is we've taken the current format of the exam, which are seven subject matter area, areas, and we've almost turned it on its head, or if you could visualize a matrix where we would take much of the content of the current exam and turn it at a right angle and matrix it across these new six categories. Some of the questions we're currently asking will reappear in ARE 5.0. We won't be using the graphic vignette tool anymore because technology has moved past that and the graphic vignette tool has become for some people an, an unnecessary impediment. They have to, it's not a tool they use in school, it's not a tool they use in practice, it's a tool they have to learn just for the exam, and they get all sort of distracted by the tool, and it becomes almost this psychological barrier to the exam. We also think the format that currently exists of subject matter testing isn't as contemporary as phases of practice testing. We think by moving the exam to a platform that looks at phases of practice, it more realistically simulates what it would be like to practice as an architect and better reinforces the experience program. And that, combined with some of the new tools such as case studies, are really designed to create a more realistic experience around taking the exam. So we think the examinees that participate in ARE 5.0 will find the experience to be much more logical. It will still have rigor. It will still be difficult. But it's not going to be difficult because of the format of the exam. And I think we've taken away the distraction that currently exists with the exam regarding some of the, the tools and the formatting of the exam itself. Okay. So talk to me about the, what NCARB perceives as the value that they provide to the everyday architect. Well, the licensed architect? The licensed architect. Sure. Right. So. Um, NCARB has something called the Certificate Program, which was established a number of years ago as a fast-track ability to get a reciprocal license in other jurisdictions. When we were founded in 1919, one of the main reasons NCARB was created was to facilitate mobility between jurisdictions. The desire of the founding uh, members of NCARB was to see whether there could be consistency across state lines so that an architect who wanted to practice in more than one jurisdiction wouldn't have to encounter a whole new set of hurdles to get over. The certificate program guarantees the new jurisdiction that we have checked the credentials of this architect, that we can accurately verify that they passed the exam that they met our education requirement either through a, a degree from a NAV accredited program or through additional experience as an alternative and that they've complied with our experience requirements. We keep the record current for them and then we transmit all that data to the other jurisdictions. So within a matter of days as opposed to months, someone can get a reciprocal license so they can maximize their ability to practice in multiple jurisdictions. That's currently the benefit we provide. The, the certificate is known as a, as a reciprocity passport. And of the 110,000 licensed architects in the US, roughly 42,000 have an in-card certificate. But we think there's more we could be doing with that tool to provide a benefit to licensed architects. So we have been spending the past several years exploring what other benefits could we add to the certificate beyond the reciprocity benefit. 
And so just in the past couple of years, we've resuscitated an older program of online continuing education called the Monograph Series. And we've re repurposed those into uh, mini monographs and we're now offering those free of charge to all NCARB certificate holders. These are for HSW, continuing education credit. So I know that the AIA has other requirements beyond HSW for their membership renewal, but for your license renewal, which is what our focus is, those mini monographs can get you partway or all the way there with meeting your requirements. That's now a free benefit. We are exploring how we might help architects manage their whole license renewal process soup to nuts so that just like you pay a tax preparer or someone else to take care of some of your paperwork, we can manage some of that for you and take away the administrative burden. We have a number of architects that are licensed in 20 or 30 states and tracking when the renewal occurs, what are the continuing education requirements, what are my fees, what are the dates, is a lot of work and it's a lot of uh, work for an administrative assistant to work on and if we could help manage that for the architect we would really um, provide a good service and I think there's other things that we can be doing just to um, help the architect further their career we would like to encourage all of our states around the country to allow fishing in other words the ability to bid for projects before you get your license if you have an NCARB certificate so that the potential client and the uh, potential jurisdiction knows that you are poised to get a license, that you're legitimate, we think that would enhance the economic opportunities of architects and it plays into our role as a record keeper and as a validator. So I think there's a lot more that we'll be looking at and announcing in the next few years around the, the benefits of the certificate. Great. Okay, well lastly here I'm going to finish up with What's NCARB's goals, or what, what what would you like attendees of this show to take away by visiting the NCARB booth here at the uh, AIA convention? Well, we adopted three internal goals for our staff and for our organization of being open, responsive, and restless. And I would like the attendees to know that that's who we've evolved to be. I think a lot of older architects have uh, set in their mind a, an outdated image of NCARB as an inaccessible, unresponsive, somewhat removed or disengaged entity. And I, I want everyone to know how much we've evolved and changed and how much we're working to make our tools relevant, that the licensure matters, that reasonable regulation matters, that we're still protecting the public, and, and that's really an important function. And I, I hope people will come and sort of rediscover NCARB in its newer iteration and be proud of how we've evolved. Well, great. Well, Michael, thank you very much for uh, joining me on Narcospeak, and good luck to everything that you're doing. Thank Appreciate you very it. much. Thank you. Yeah. What I find interesting about that interview is this really touches on what we spoke about in episode 92 about experience. Everything's mm -hmm. experience, so feel vindicated, Cormac. <laughs> I do feel encouraged that there's going to be less emphasis on just the licensure and more emphasis on being equipped to navigate the profession, which is the whole point of the rant, which some people got, some people didn't. But the whole point of that rant was, are you equipped to manage, to navigate the waters of a pretty crazy profession? And, and it, it sounds like NCARB, not only does it sound like they're positioning both the architectural experience program, 
but also the licensure program and the tracking and mentorship program, it sounds like they're starting to align those with what the reality of the profession really is. And that people who are getting these licenses isn't just a test taker, but they actually are prepared to be, they've, they've gained enough good, valuable practice-related experience to really move forward in their profession. And that's encouraging. I mean, that's very encouraging, especially after the soapbox rant of 92, that this sounds great. And to be quite honest with you, it also sounds like NCARB is positioning themselves to be of even greater value to the profession than quite possibly even the AIA, or at least in perception-wise. And I don't want to be unfair to the AIA, but here's the NCARB positioning themselves to make reciprocity a little bit easier, to be a valiant record keeper in one of the uh I, I don't know how many and i'm just going to speculate let's say he's got like 40 of the states that he's got a, a license in and though so we practice all across the country and stuff so this guy has got to keep up with or or people have to keep up with all of his licensures and when they expire and when to renew them and everything else and and he's right i mean why not have a a service that NCARP, who is the ones who are issuing and governing the licensure, why not have them offer a service to be able to monitor and control and and uh, help ease that? They're rebranding themselves to really let people know their value and their worth. It's encouraging. I don't buy any of this. I think that it's wow. purely a, bre- a rebranding effort. And I think that these are just words. I... Honestly, the proof is going to be in what they actually accomplish because right now it just seems like they're more concerned about policing the word architect when it only applies to people who have graduated and are trying to get their license. They're not concerned about outside the industry at all. Um, or if they are, it's hard to tell. Let me just ask that, and I apologize for cutting you off here, but that's okay. How do you think that we're going to really be able to do that? I mean, because I don't, I don't think it's important at all. I think we already lost it. Yeah, yeah. Again, I don't think any of this actually, any of that actually matters. I think right. what they really need to do is they need to change the way that these exams are given. They should not give them whenever people want them. I think they should go back to the way they used to do it when Neil did it. I think that they should create camaraderie within the profession for people who want to get licensed. And I think it would create more meaning for it within the firms that we work for and within the industry if people rallied around this kind of a thing. If they're so concerned about licensure, allow the architects to rally around that as this big rite of passage that it probably should be. Instead of making it this anonymous thing that people can do when they want or quit easily and back out of it, no one has to know. I mean, if you look at the graph that they publish in the NCARB report every year, when they went to computers, the line shot up for how long it takes people to get licensed. Because all of a sudden, it wasn't just happening at this big push every year. It was whenever you wanted. So people put it off. I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Cormac, it's, uh, it's one of those things. That. We both went through this. And so it's like put the effort into making a difference where it actually matters. And to me, that is not about these titles one bit. And it shouldn't be about what you're called. Who cares? Just move on and get it. Totally agree with you there. Totally agree with you. But... The thing that I felt encouraged about was when he talked about that IDP now AXP has. Uh, I'm sorry, just I want to I want to finish the statement off with PDQ, just 
<laughs> because <laughs> it's aligning itself with the practical experience of the profession and that's what they say but do you really think that going from seven tests down to six and just jumbling the questions around is actually going to do that because i don't well I'm, I'm curious to see how it changes from four to five when they are getting rid of the vignettes and great because you know how many people i've talked to in just my office alone that get tripped up in the vignette because it's Oh, you got to practice a vignette a lot more than I did because it's not your normal drafting tool. And and so you just kind of get, and so people get, you know, tied up and, and tripped up with it. So I'm curious to see what they use to display your knowledge. They've already talked about how they're going to do that. I mean, it's, they've replaced the vignette with these hotspot graphics and you're going to maybe do some drag and drop, or you're going to have to click on a piece of an image. It's going to be way more like using the internet, I think. Which is fine. You know what? Then their next step should be is um, have the damn thing open book because you know what? In the profession, we never do anything without our references next to us. Yeah, where's choice E when when you would call your consultant and ask them? (laughs) Exactly. It's just like, what number or what formula do you need to remember for checking this moment? Oh, it's not a formula. It's a number. It's called a phone number. And it's, hey, Mr. Structural (laughs) Engineer, I was thinking of designing it this way. Is this going to work? I just feel like this is all spin. I don't feel like, you know, you're you're polishing the turd a little bit more here. And it's got a new graphic and they have to change out all these words everywhere. But I don't think they're actually changing. Like, Like the whole thing needs an overhaul. And I don't feel like this is it. I feel like this is just... A small evolution. Do you think it's a baby step that could lead towards it? Because I'm trying to be a little bit more positive about it, I suppose. <laughs> than you were in the last episode. <laughs> I don't think you were that far off base. I Honestly, I, I feel like this is just one of those things where there's exclamation points and there are bold words and there are registered trademarks. And this is one of those rebranding efforts that they paid a lot of money for. And now they're really trying to sell it. But I don't think that the foundation has changed. And I think that's really the problem. I mean, if you go through AXP because X's are cool, you're still missing out on all your CA hours to get your license. I mean, yes, they have, in podcasting air quotes here, realigned the test with the areas of practice. But again, all they're saying is that they've changed up what questions go in what section of the test and maybe it's a little bit clearer i don't i don't know but i don't think that it's that different that's all so without looking at what the 50 test is and what are your six areas of the practice that people who are getting their license should focus on if you want to just think about the titles they probably are but you know what those questions are like the questions are more about your ability to comprehend and to get in there and interpret what they're trying to say. Like you said last time, most of the answers are correct, but which one is the most correct? And when and they put the extra time limit in there, it, it makes it this nerve-wracking thing that you have to go through just to jump through these hoops to get your license. I don't feel like they're... Yes, I totally did learn stuff when I was studying for those exams, but I don't feel like those are the types of exams that are necessary to be licensed i know they have to set some kind of a baseline but again your idea of going through some type of actual apprenticeship 
is, again, it would have to be completely overhauled. But that, to me, is a much more legitimate way to go about doing this. I'm curious what prompted NCARB back in the day to go from apprentice to internship. And then now, and I know what happened with intern. You know, everybody seemed to be, I mean, he was right. He was spot on with the whole, it has this negative connotation to it. And it does. And everybody seems to be offended if they're called an, an intern after they've graduated. They've got years and years of experience and they're technically still called an intern and probably their damnedest to be called anything but that. No, nobody calls them that. Nobody does. It's it's just it was this stuff. It was all this marketing materials that were calling them that. So I'm I'm curious what what was this that prompted them? This isn't something to solve on the podcast or anything else, but it is something that maybe if a listener out there does some form of like end carb history research, why they got rid of this apprenticeship and felt like that had no value when that's what everybody essentially would really like it to be is show me, guide me, yeah. teach me how to do this job the right way. And one, it'll benefit you because then you can move up and I can move into your position. And we've talked about that this entire time. But then it just makes the profession itself stronger because now we have legitimately experienced people and not people who either a rubber stamp or b i mean you just say okay yeah yeah, you can put these down as uh your ca hours and so it's like but all i was doing was organizing the ca folder on the server accounts <laughs> <laughs> i guess that counts, right? but i mean you know and i don't want to trivialize a lot of the experience and stuff but i mean there's experience and then there's some really good experience and apprenticeship gives you that really good experience yeah it totally does you're right i don't know why they would move away from that either and i don't think that it was a move away from that that was orchestrated by NCARB. i think it's just the natural tendency of the people within the profession to call it selfishness call it protecting your job, call it whatever you want, but it's it's one of those things where, and it's a total generality, I'm not saying everybody's like this, but it's one of those things where enough people over time forgot about the future of the profession. They're just concerned about making what they need to make so that they can live. And when you go through economies, the way architecture goes through economies, I mean, you hit rock bottom and then it skyrockets and then you hit rock bottom and you get a little leaner, and you never kind of get back up to where you were, and you, it's this game of diminishing returns. You slowly taper off down to numbness of, in such a sad, I'm like painting this terrible story, but I mean, it's just one of those things that I've noticed where, what else leads to this predicament that we're in? I mean, it's just people stopped giving, right? Mm -hmm. People stopped giving, that's all. And I don't think it's that terrible, I don't, because there are people, I'm very interested in developing people, and I know there's people I work with who are also very interested in developing people, but it is not the majority of people right. that are interested in doing that. It is a small percentage that, that I have experienced. Sometimes it's just the nature of the profession that you just don't have time. It's not just our profession either. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, but a client doesn't want to pay for the development of a new architect. Nope. They want people that are competent, faster, leaner, yep, who can get it done, get it yep. done fast, get it done right, and ultimately cheaper. But I mean, the firms are like, okay, well, you want it cheaper, so I'm going to put this intern on. But you're also saying you want it better and right and all that other stuff. Well, then crap, I'm going to have to put this guy and this guy and this guy on it too. 
And then they all just get bogged down into the project minutiae and not into development of being able to sit down with the, I'm going to say kid, you know, whatever. But just sitting down with them and really kind of like talking to them and nurturing them and telling them why they're doing what they're doing. Because, you know, a firm understanding of letting them know why you're doing what you're doing is essentially the basis of mentorship. Well, it's a very small percentage of people who intentionally do that. Right. And it takes that intention. And so that, to me, is a mindset shift that needs to happen on a larger scale within the profession to become a reality. And the only way that that's going to happen is if we keep doing this and there's other people out there who keep pushing and pushing and they're leading upward, right? Because not the people at the top are not necessarily pushing for this. And for those who are, awesome. But really, it takes a mindset of, like-minded or like-purposed individuals to kind of all get on the same page and push for this together so that the awareness becomes something that is a daily occurrence. And I know that that's something we're trying to do in our company, that's for sure, is this whole idea that mentorship happens, and it has to happen. If it doesn't happen, then we just keep on the same path that that we've been on and that we're on right now, um, which isn't going to get us anywhere. It's not a future for this profession, the path that we're on. Yeah, if if we don't shore up the profession by use of the knowledge that we have and and strengthening the knowledge that's coming, yeah, you're right. We're destined for failure. Designed to fail. (laughs) Womp womp. Well, hey, guys, with that happy (laughs) note... Yeah, I definitely want to thank all of the people that we were able to speak with at the AIA convention in Philadelphia this year. It was a great experience to be there at the show. And I know we've talked a little bit about that before. So go check out that episode. We'll have a link in the show notes for that. But I want to just thank everyone that we spoke with again. And before we go, I want to thank all of our sponsors for this episode. RCAT, Check out all the features they offer at arcat.com, Architect Marketing Institute. Download your free Architect Marketing Flowchart at architectmarketingflowchart.com. And Drobo. Visit them at www.drobo.com to learn more. And make sure you use the ArcaSpeak offer code of ARCH100 to save $100 off your purchase of a Drobo. And for links to our catalog of episodes, visit our website at arcaspeakpodcast.com. At the site, you can also sign up for our newsletter that includes links to everything we mentioned in the episode. Between episodes, join the conversation by leaving comments at arcaspeakpodcast.com or on our Facebook page or Twitter. Links can be found by visiting the site at arcaspeakpodcast.com. And thanks for listening. Good night. Good night. Good night. You can start now, or you can hang your head in despair. The only road will take you there. They may tell you that you'll never recover, baby. I'm there, one thing or another about you. The only road will get you there. And if they don't know how to treat a lady, they Discipline and a hand 
Cross that face, baby, let's pretend 